Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Early Modern History, a channel on the New Books Network. I am here today with Garrett Van Dyke, lecturer in history at the University of Newcastle, Australia, to talk about his new book, Commerce, Food, and Identity in 17th Century England and France, Across the Channel, out this year, 2022, with Amsterdam University Press. Hey, Chip, welcome to the program. Thanks, Yana. It's great to be here. It's a really nice to talk to you. Um, and we are welcoming Professor Van Dyke from Salamander Bay, Australia, I've just learned, where you can watch whales and scuba dive. So uh, how yeah. are things this, and it's your summer, so how are things this summer for you? Yeah, we're heading into heading into summer. There are beautiful jacaranda trees um, blooming everywhere. That's how you know it's exam time. Um, in this in this part of um, New South Wales, when the jacarandas are in bloom, uh, it's time to to sit for your exams. Uh, but it's I'm looking forward to uh, getting out on the getting out on the beach, going for a swim um, as the weather warms up. It's lovely here. Wow, yeah, that's it's so funny, right? As the like we're we're in the darkest part of our winter here um, of our cycle, and it's just all glue vine and and bright lights on you know when it's dark at four thirty. So really bizarre seasons are weird the planet's weird yeah well i grew i grew up in the snow so for me it's um it's kind of weird when there's a christmas market here i keep thinking of of yeah like a weinacht you know it's like and then here it's no it's uh it's still light out uh even though they're they've got fairy lights put up um yeah and you're and you're and you're hot so yeah you don't want glühwein certainly you want you want a cold a cold drink for sure no that's very funny all right Hey, so um, I'm looking at your CV and it looks as if you've been interested in food history for like basically your whole academic life. Um, so, but there, there's a story of how you got to academic life and food, right? Like, so you, you came, this is your second, third life being an academic. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I, I did study English literature um, as an undergraduate at Columbia, and then uh, I wound up working, sort of fell into um, working in banking, worked at a couple of those. And one of them that I worked for had me working for them around the globe um, in uh, New York, London, a little bit of time in Tokyo, and then Sydney. And then I wound up staying in Sydney because uh, my wife, who is an art historian, got a job at Sydney University. So we wound up staying in Australia. And um, when that happened, I decided I was going to leave banking. I'd had enough and um, go to cooking school. Um, and I went to Le Cordon Bleu 
And then when my wife got some study leave, like a sabbatical, um, we took our newborn son and spent a year in France um, where I studied at École de Notre, um, which is in Plaisir in France, uh, sort of a professional uh, development school for for chefs, and they also they run a uh, shops in 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 Paris and other major French cities as um, uh, as a traiteur um, and as a patisserie. Um, so I got sort of a good exposure from both of those. As a as a kid growing up, both my parents worked, so um, I got the job of cooking dinner from about the time I was I think eleven. Um, so my mom broke her leg and we lived in a two story farmhouse, so she couldn't get up and down the stairs. So I had to learn how to cook. My sister is four years older than me and she has many, many gifts. She's a gifted musician. Um, she's a very successful, um, pediatrician, um, in the great state of Vermont, but, um, no, no, she she was not she was not entrusted with a family meal, so uh, I, I got put in charge of cooking, and yeah, I decided that this was something that I was passionate about and, and wanted to pursue. So I studied um, at Le Cordon Bleu, and then and then at Ecole Note, and then while I was in France, I started doing some some research, just coming into contact with um, with old um, old books about um, about French food. Um, so things like uh, Bria Savarin's uh, uh, The Physiologie du Goût, The Physiology of Taste, um, and even uh, later books written by um, you know, former writers for the International Herald Tribune, writing about their time um, in Paris and um, just sort of getting an idea about French cuisine and, and its sort of long history. Um, and then um, back in Australia, my wife was teaching a course in a continuing education program, sort of a community, community-run courses through the University of Sydney. And um, she was running a course on sort of French luxury, the French invention of luxury, um, Versailles, architecture, um, the history of dress. And she said, gee, it would really help if we could have a section on food and drink, would you be able to do that? And I said, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll, I'll have a crack at that. So I did that. And then um, I had students asking me questions and I sort of had answers for them from my research, but they, they sort of pushed it a little bit further. And one of the questions that they asked was, look, if, you know, the, if the French, you know, really, they got a real handle on, on cuisine and this codification of, of techniques for cooking and recipes, um, how come that never made it across the channel? Why was the food in England so bad for so long when there was all this amazing food just, just over in France? So, um, yeah, so I, you know, I gave them the, the existing answer, which was, well, that happened because of the, the interregnum. We get this break, um, you know, with, after, you know, we, we kill a king, we've got Oliver Cromwell as the Lord Protector, and he turned his back on French cuisine. And when that happened, court kind of fell apart, and this need to emulate the court also fell apart. So this need to actually, you know, follow French cuisine and, and have it be the royal cuisine, um, that sort of fell out of the way. And students looked at me and they said, hmm. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can see that. But you know, what do you think? And I said, well, I think there's something else going on there, but I haven't really put my finger on it yet. So I was, um, you know, talking about this with um, uh, with my wife and then with um, another um, historian who was at the table, uh, Professor Glenda Sluga, um, who is at, um, uh, I think it's um, EUI in Florence. And um uh, also in Sydney, and um, and she said, "Well, it sounds like you have a dissertation topic." 
I said, wait, what now? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Excuse me. Um, she said, well, when are you going to, when are you going to do your PhD? And I said, well, I wasn't ever planning on doing a PhD. So, well, sounds like you've got the material right there to do one. And yeah, so she wound up being my PhD supervisor and I wound up um, pursuing um, you know, part, not just obviously the the question of, of of food, but the idea of um, this transnational approach to uh, to culture between England and France, and looking at it um, how it relates to things like what we eat and what we drink, and how French and English people saw themselves and thought about what it meant to be French or meant to be English. So before we even have a have a nation in the political sense, um, you know, people still thought very much about, well, French people do this, English people do that. And when we think about, you know, English people drink tea, not coffee. Well, that's true. But at one stage, London was the coffee house capital of the world. There were more coffee houses in London than anywhere else on the planet. So what what happened there? And as part of my research, even for that first lecture series I did, I ran across the, uh, there were lots of historians that had mentioned that the bubbles in Champagne were really sort of a, a byproduct that Dom Perignon was trying to take out. He wasn't, the, he didn't go to Olivier Abbey to put bubbles in. He went to take them out because they were seen as a winemaking fault. And instead it was English consumers that actually embraced the bubble and said, hey, how do we provoke this? How do we make sure this happens? Um, but there was no traction for it. And it made me think, well, everyone knows this, but it's not really out there anywhere. So it's not it's not a secret, but why doesn't it get any sort of traction? Why doesn't anyone why doesn't anyone care about this? Why doesn't um, you know, why why hasn't anyone actually thought about why this is the case? Um, and then, you know, I run up wound up thinking about other things that had a sort of a similar um sort of comparative nature, like well, we get our first coffee house in London, and it's not another like 20 years until we get a cafe in Paris. Why did it take so long? I mean, people are going back and forth across the channel all the time. Why, why did it take that long to, to get started? And then the last thing that I thought about was the, um, was the, the famous British sweet tooth. The, uh, the fact that the Brits are, are known for wanting things very sweet and eating a lot of sweets. And I thought, well, I knew that that was true. But then I also knew from reading the, the journals of uh, Louis XIV's physician that he had terrible teeth and that he lost almost all of them and had to have these terrible surgeries because he had this huge fondness for, for sugared fruits like fruit pastille, fruit uh, sèche, these sort of, these sort of uh, confit, this confiture de de fruit. Um, and so he, he was a big fan of, of having candied fruits and they destroyed his teeth. So if, if the king is losing his teeth, well, hang on. Did, was it only for the king? It was it just for the elites or what about regular people? Did they have access to sugar? Um, yeah. What about the French sweet tooth? Is it, is it just a, uh, an elite consumer item or, or, or did it get embraced at a lower level? Yeah, so that's where this this all came from was from that that one lecture that um, that led to a conversation that um, sort of pulled me in and uh, into the vortex of doing uh, of doing a PhD and um, yeah got me got me to write this book. Wow, that's a that is a it's a great story, um, and I love how many ways how many times you could have gone a different path and yet here you are. Um, so, you know, uh, there's, there's a lot here that I really want to unpack. And the first thing I hadn't thought about until you just, until hearing this story, but I was just talking to, uh, 
Pamela Smith at Columbia, um, who is a history historian of science, and she runs something called the Making and Knowing Project. And you know, I don't want, this isn't her interview, so I'll take just two seconds. But like, she was trying to figure out like why people started writing down scientific knowledge around the year fourteen hundred, and she was she realized she needed to go make some stuff, and so she's like. It did metal work and what have you. And it's real cool. Um, and check out that project. But um, it made me, I suddenly want to know how much you think being this, how much your embodied knowledge of food and spending time in, you know, going to school in Australia, which has its own kind of food culture, and then doing a stage in Paris, home of food culture, which we'll get to in a second, actually. Like, how much do you think this has affected your understanding? Like, your your understanding of food is really reflected in your history. I think that the constant context certainly has something to do with it. Um, and then on top of that, um, both through the uh, the experience of, of living in France, um, for a couple of years um, was, I think was really helpful because it made me think about things that, that endure in, in, in France in terms of, um, in terms of attitudes. Um, it was funny. I would have instructors um, that would taste something that I had made. Cause generally speaking, there's a, you, you, you're, you're given a demonstration and then you have a recipe and then you have to go produce it. Um, and then, you know, the, the, you present something to be tasted and then they examine the quality of them. They talk to you about, you know, what you did right or what could be done differently. Um, and I remember I was making, um, uh, I think it was like an, it was an, a type of Alsatian apple galette. And the problem was that it called for this minute quantity of cinnamon. Um, so, so little that I thought, surely this is a mistake. So I adjusted it to my taste. And then um, it was funny because the, um, the, the chef that was inspecting it uh, was himself a meilleur ouvrier de France. So he is sort of like a, like, it's like the Olympics for, for, um, for, for, for chefs. And you get to wear the red, white, and blue tricolor on, on the collar of your, your chef's jacket. And he tasted it and he said, you know, cannelle. So there was too much for him. There was too much cinnamon in it, and he he had a knowing look with another European chef, and they said, "As ah, oh, Van Dijk, that's why. It's because you're Dutch." And I said, "Well, I, actually, I'm you know third generation American." But they said, "No, no, no, no. You know, Lisong. It's in the blood. You know, it's 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 there." So these these ideas about you know uh, it being innate, um, and certainly um, going to markets in France and talking to. Uh, the people working in them about um, about you know what they thought that the correct ideas were for the way things should be produced. Um, uh, for example, like if you go to um, a, a cheese stall in, in France and um, and you ask for uh, like a camembert, um, a good cheese seller will ask you, "Well, when are you going to eat it? For when? When is this for? Is this for this afternoon, or is this for a picnic, or are you eating it on Thursday? Like you know, you know, is it really meant to be?" Prêt à manger, tendre au cœur. Like, it, do you want it to be squishy in the middle, or what are we looking for here? It's it's a different attention to to food, and that that sort of resonated um, with me. And certainly, I think by doing things hands on myself, it it made me think about um, the way that knowledge is transmitted, because there is this movement from what was not a literate workforce into one that then learned how to read. So. The idea was that knowledge was normally transmitted verbally and there weren't quantities. So you you knew either through taste or through tradition or from your own understanding. Uh, you're standing there as an apprentice next to somebody else and they're showing you how it's done. Um, and that was the way that you would 
that was the way that you would learn. So there wasn't this idea that, you know, you would just read a recipe and that would be enough. Or like today, like, well, I, I watched a TikTok, so I know how to make this. So it's uh, it was a very different tradition. So I think that it's, for me, I think that having the hands-on practice um, makes a difference. And it's also too, there's a different thing when you cook for, when you cook for your friends, when you cook for your family, when you cook for people that you, that you love, that is, that is one thing. But then in a commercial setting to be able to reproduce the same dish exactly the same way day in, day out, and to be able to do it for, let's say for 200 people, that's a different, that's a different skill set and it's a different way of thinking. So it really makes you think too about, when um, the codification of French cuisine comes in, and these these are really being written not for not for home use, not for domestic use, not even a large house, but they're really being written so that you know the officier d'office, the sort of the the master of of everything, um, is going to be able to produce it for a banquet for for a large number of people, and that's that's a, it's a very different thing. So I think it certainly helps um, give me some additional insights. Yeah, I find that very interesting as well. The idea, you know, there's so many places with good food culture. And despite, you know, what I hear as an American living in Europe, we do in the U.S. have a food culture. And um, it's, it's and we have very good food. These people would be shocked to know we stole, we've taken it from everywhere, of course. But, um, you know, like I'm thinking about the, the Jersey hero, right? But like every shop has a slightly different one and you like what have you, as opposed to this idea of, no, there's this much cinnamon, it must taste exactly the same, and I want it exactly like this, and that is the French way. And you, Van Dyke, with your too much cinnamon, what do you expect after the spice trade? Um, <clears throat> this idea that there is there is a right way, and that would be the French way. Um, and that's, that's the thing that comes through a lot in the book, but also I imagine doing a stage in Paris really, really like drove home for you. Yeah, yeah. certainly. So like, um, uh, at, um, at, at Ecole Notre, for example, there are lots of times when, um, you know, we'd be given exact formulas according to weight, selon poids, that, you know, this is, this is how much you use of salt, of pepper, of of whatever spice it was, it was, this is the amount that you use. So that way it could be extrapolated to, you know, to however many kilos of, of, of fish or, 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 or chicken you had. Um, but yeah, there was, it was, it was definitely not something where you just sort of threw caution to the wind and said, huh, you know what? I feel like using lemongrass today. Let's get some lemongrass. So no, no, that was definitely not, definitely not the thing. There was lots of um, very traditional um, uh, ideas about about what 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 things um, went together and, and certain approaches and and techniques that had, had passed the the sort of test of time. Um, so it was very different. It wasn't the sort of freewheeling molecular gastronomy. Let's make a foam out of a capsicum type thing. So yeah, it's, it's quite different. Yeah. Well, yeah, um, I definitely, or just different than being a home cook or different than being, you know, everybody's mom has a, their own roast, kind of a different situation. Um, and all of what we're getting at is that in France or what I'm trying to get to is that in France, food is more than just food. Um, but we'll get there in a second. I have a, okay. So You've got this like firsthand knowledge. You started this work and you did your dissertation, which involves a lot of scholarship and reading other people's work. But then um, some primary sources you consulted for this as well. What did you look at for your book? 
So there are lots of different types of primary sources here. Um, I would say that in terms of primary sources, I'm a bit of an omnivore. Um, so uh, if this were if this were like a truly economic history, then there would be a lot of um, a lot of there would be a lot of data and a lot of figures. Um, and there is a little bit in there in terms of things like what people earned or how much was exported versus imported. So there's some custom records in there, but um, you know, we, we have lyrics from a song. Um, there are poems. So we've got Voltaire's Le Mondain. Um, we've got the lyrics to the, the roast beef of old England. Um, we've got cookbooks. We've got recipes. We've got, you know, excerpts from manuscripts where people talked about what they ate. We've got firsthand accounts from the court, um, you know the the court secretary recording Louis the Fourteenth's meeting with um, you know with a um, with an envoy from um, from the Ottoman Empire. So it's you know there's there's really a wide variety of 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 different things in there. Wherever possible, when you can, it's great to have someone's own words, especially in correspondence, because at least with correspondence, you know that they're communicating with that other person. And that's the intended audience that is not being written for posterity. So because when you get a memoir, there's the anticipation of this reaching a wider public. So it's always being written with an eye towards it being published. Whereas when there's correspondence, it's really just being written to that other person. So I feel like that's at least any filtering that's being done is is in, in one direction. So you get a better idea of what they have to say. So for example, when there are negociants, uh, wine, wine um, sellers in France that are talking to their clients, and they're telling them, "Hey, you don't want you don't want bubbles. Bubbles are not good. Bubbles bubbles should be in beer, maybe in uh, in hot chocolate. You know, you frothed up your chocolate show, um, but yet no, not in not in wine. So it's interesting to see the differences between what gets included in, say, for example, um, um, where's the doctoral thesis on coffee that was delivered down um, in the south of France, questioning whether or not it was going to displace wine as the Frenchman's drink." And whether or not that would be a dangerous thing to do, and was it safe for Frenchmen to drink? Um, so we have things like that. There are medical treaties that, you know, when when coffee first arrived, people weren't sure, sort of even, you know, which end to put it in, um, because they thought, well, we know what they do with it, and you know, let's say for example, in, in you know in in Turkey, but but what about here? What should we be doing with it? So they sort of ingested it in all sorts of different ways. So you get these medical treaties. Um, these are scientific treaties because food was medicine. So there's lots of different things that I've tried to incorporate to give an idea. And just sort of like my own sort of my sort of weird peregrinations, my movements around the globe, um, there's lots of contingency built into this history, which I think people don't necessarily appreciate. So the fact that people drink coffee or drink tea or um, or have certain things at certain times of day, that these weren't necessarily fixed at the time. And just because you have a supply of a new commodity, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's going to take off. So that, you know, there's a, you know, that raises the question about all sorts of things. For example, you know, cannabis wasn't a thing. It wasn't like it wasn't around, um, but it just, it wasn't consumed. Why, why not? Um, the, the great historian of coffee houses, Brian Cowan, uh, pointed out that, for example, a betel nut never took off. So chewing betel nut, <laughs> you know, very popular in some parts of the world. But, you know, just because it was brought back home by a sailor doesn't mean that it suddenly took off and the people embraced it. So, yeah, lots of things that um, were novelties never really took over and took hold the same way, whereas some of these things did. So each step along the way, I'm looking for that to say, well, 
what was it that made it possible for this particular comestible to um, to get a foothold and and really become popular? Was it was it the was it its inherent value? Was it, it something about it? Was it was it the flavor? Was it an effect? Was it was it everything else that went with it? The equipage, the the accoutrement. Um, was it um, was it notions of respectability or you know or what was it? What you know because we we we'd all like to think that there are certain innate things that you like like. Perhaps, you know, there's an innate taste for sweetness, but that doesn't really explain necessarily why sugar took off the way it did when it did. So I'm always looking for that sort of contingency in my sources, trying to get whenever I can the first um, the first person view. You know, um, that's the thing that's very interesting about this work that you can see is it's um, I mean, we're talking about something that is culture, high culture, low culture, a biological need. But you're look, you look at it and you look at it as such. But you always also, there's a lot here. This story is one of commerce, international trade, taste making, um, economics. So this, I mean, there's a lot of ways this is an economic history. Um, and I hope I didn't offend you there. But, uh, it's, it's also, I mean, it's this cultural story that's backed up and in, in like it sits on the nexus of a lot of ideas, which is very cool and makes a very interesting multivalent book. Um, and, and I'm sure a lot of fun, but also pretty time consuming and a little bit laborious to write. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's lots of sort of bits to it. Um, and yeah, there is, there are economic elements to it. Um, so the, in, you know, from the 17th century, we don't really have economics in the same way that we think about it today. Um, we sort of have political economy, but just sort of. Um, so there's these different ideas that were being sort of put around at the time about, you know, you know, how do you what what actually makes for a prosperous nation? Um, so you you get, come from an original idea about international trade being driven by providence, that it's providential design, that, that God has distributed gifts among the among the various nations of the world and and encouraged the international brotherhood of commerce and therefore by one nation having something that the other one doesn't, that God has done this to make sure that the brotherhood of man will will communicate with one another and exchange their surpluses for the other party's surplus, and in that way, each one of them benefits. So the idea that you know things grow in one place and not in the other is something that happens, um, you know, in in the mindset early on that, they, that the idea that you need to go to this other part of the world to get those goods, um, whether could so for example spices, uh, needing to go to other, the other ends of the earth to get spices. Um, people often forget that when Columbus sailed, he was yes he was looking for uh, for for uh, for souls uh, for for new to meet uh, to become new Christians, and yes he was looking for gold, but he was also looking for pepper. So you know even going back that far, there's. There's this um, there's this drive for this international trade, and then thinking about how ideas and people move, and then the goods move, and then the kind of exchanges that occur, and sometimes too the really surprising thing is when the exchanges don't occur. Well, why does why does why does an idea circulate but it's not adopted by the other culture? I think that that's something that that is equally fascinating. So sometimes we get this exchange, um, sometimes we get this sort of um, what the French call histoire croisée, uh, where you get sort of this sort of intersection, this sort of you know knot or tangle in the in the history where they where they come together, and sometimes we just get a good comparison where we can look at it and see what's happening. And I thought that there really what there, there really wasn't a lot of um, 
um, a lot of emphasis on how her trade and economics had influenced what was going on. And I thought that that was something that they could have used a little bit um, of additional attention. So that's why it was included in the book, because the the topic of just England and France and their different cuisines is, is huge. So needing to focus in a little bit, I thought, well, what hasn't really been discussed? And I thought, gee, that it's, it's, it's quite different when you think about how, how the goods get sort of naturalized coming in through their own trading companies. And then you get certain cultures, like for example, the Dutch East India company was always looking to cut out the middleman. So they were always looking to grow their own coffee or grow their own sugar or, you know, whatever it was, you know, they, they wanted to control spices. They wanted to have a monopoly on that. Whereas the British were happy to do the, the sort of carrying trade, not necessarily to have the control. Um, and then I thought, well, how does this then fit in with with things like spices? How does it fit in with coffee or tea or or sugar? For example, with sugar, we've got sugar colonies for both um, for both England and France in the 17th century. So how does that you know influence what what happens there with how they how they consume it? Do they do they import it? Do they re-export it? Does it go to the continent or does it stay does it stay local? Um, and what what drives that? Is that because of a question of taste or is it about tariffs or is it about um, wages? What what are the different factors that come into play determining um, what gets consumed and, and what doesn't? So I, I think that I just remember I was walking through Paris and I was looking at a. Um, at, at an épicerie, like a, a it's like a sort of a spice shop, um, and and it was I think it you know it was talking about speciality oriental and the idea of it being oriental and the and just that that association of 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 where for for France what what oriental means where as 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 an American when someone says oriental I think about certain parts of Asia I think about what you know what used to be called the Far East but for um, for for the French when they say Oriental, they're thinking really about the port sublime. They're thinking about the Sultan. So it's a very different idea and a very different geography that was coming through. And I, I, I thought that, that eventually that a lot of that related to where the trade was occurring and how that influenced. That's interesting, too, um, because when you said Oriental, my immediate thought was like Chinatown and that kind of American Chinese food that I would eat, you know, right? Like, I mean, how much of like the Orient is just when we got our spices, when we started eating from there, right? So older in France. Um, and this like and this kind of long, um, the, the long vision, right? Because bef- it's not as if spice didn't, there weren't spices in Europe before 1492 or, you know, the mid 15th century when Europeans really started going abroad in great numbers. There's this long history of spice consumption and, um, and using food as a demonstration of wealth, power, taste, belonging, just generally elite status. But something really changes here in this early modern period. Um, right? Yeah, so we get the, the big shift that happens where there's, there's a break where uh, the profusion of spices, spices were used so liberally, for example, you know, in, in medieval feasting um, and color was very important. So being able to color your foods um, a certain way and having sort of an insane quantity of spice. Um, the old um, sort of myth was that uh, spices were used because um, the meat had spoiled 
And because the meat is spoiled, you need to disguise the flavor. But the thing is that spices were so expensive that, especially in that period, that um, if you could afford the spices, you could afford fresh meat. Uh, so really, uh, I think uh, Paul Friedman at, at Yale um, wrote about this and say, saying that to suggest that, that spices were put on rotten meat, he said, it would be like somebody taking, you know, gold leaf and putting it on a on, on a Big Mac. You know, you just, you know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't do that. So um uh, you just the, wouldn't eat rotten meat because that's yes, gross. Yes, that's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, the change comes about uh, eventually because there's this attempt um, to go around the sort of stranglehold on trade of spices coming by land and then being controlled through uh, through Venice. And suddenly there's this move to go out and explore. And as I mentioned, that's part of what Columbus was, was looking for. Um, so we, we get Spain and Portugal that begin that, uh, that quest for, um, for spices. And then it's really taken up um, by the Dutch East India Company, um, you know, right about like 1600. And, um, and the British follow closely behind trying to uh, get into that market. And eventually they, they, they lose the, the spice race. Um, so like the space race, we've got, we've got the spice race. Uh, they lose the spice race, but then they win the sort of Calico War um, and they wind up going into textiles instead. So they never get the sort of um, stranglehold on spices that they want to that is, you know, held on to very tightly um, by the VOC. And of course, we get the the worst. Donald Trump would say the, the best uh, the best deal ever which was exchanging a spice island in, in the Moluccas um, for, for Manhattan. Um, so, yes, for uh, the, the, uh, the, the British gain uh, New Amsterdam in exchange for an, you know, an, an island that had nutmeg on it. So at the time, it, it seemed like, um, you know, the, 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 that, the, um, that the British were, were sort of losing out. But, um, yes, in the long run, uh, New Amsterdam has, has, has come good. But, yeah, the, the movement away from spices, when they, when they stop being exclusive, when, they, when the prices start to fall, then it, they stop being the same sort of signifier of status and wealth. You don't have to know special people to be able to get them because they're so hard to get. They're no longer that expensive. So it's not a question just of conspicuous consumption. Now the question is, what will be your new mode of, of um, differentiation? How will you make yourself look, um, you know, especially wealthy? And technique. Technique becomes the new differentiation, the new signifier of wealth, that you have someone who knows to cook in the new way, in the new mode, um, which is lighter and more delicate and doesn't require these heavy flavors anymore that disguise the true nature of the things that are there. And that's what comes through in, um, in 1651 with, um, with a new French cookbook, Le Cuisine Francois. Um, and then following on, on the back of that, there's these other books by uh, Nicolas de Bonfon, who writes um, Les Délices de la Campagne, the, you know, the, 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 the delicacies of the countryside. And he says, you know, if you're making cabbage soup, it should taste of cabbage. It shouldn't taste like saffron. It shouldn't taste like turmeric or, you know, or, or, or some other exotic spice. Um, we don't need grains of paradise in there. Let's just, let's have cabbage soup that tastes of cabbage. And so there's this turn inwards in France to appreciating the high quality of their produce. Um, and I think, um, I think somewhere in there, he winds up saying, um, you know, parsley, 
this will be the French spice, which is <laughs> which is so funny because you know we think you know parsley is really just it's it's a garnish. It's not you know it's not a, it's not a spice, but that was the mode to to move away from all of these heavy flavors. Uh, they they wound up saying, oh these are these are fit only for Arabs who would have all these crazy spices. You know the the delicate sensibilities of a Frenchman are not suited to these. We must taste the flavors of our own country, notre France. So it's this real move inwards and in saying. You know, this is who we are, um, and this connection with the things that are grown in our climate. So it's again, you know, the idea that comes out now for things like like wine and, and other products of terroir. But they're at that elemental level to say our cuisine is firmly rooted in the soil of France and in its products. Um, we don't need all of these these other things. And if you want to show that you're rich. You've got a you've got a French chef who's up to speed. He's on top of the latest um, trends, and he's cooking in this new, more refined way, where we don't have to have a giant marzipan castle. We don't need to have um, a pie that blackbirds you know burst out of. We don't need the pageantry anymore, the colors and the profusion of spices. Now we will have technique, and that will be the new thing that um, that people appreciate. Right. So. Um, I mean, like this, there's, this resonates so much to kind of with our modern era too, in the era of Marie Kondo and throwing away everything, right? We go from like, can you, we do, can only rich people can consume to now like, ah, oh, I show my, I show my wealth with my refinement and I don't need to consume. Um, and it, France, like, of course, France, of course, it's France. He's like, ah, oh, like our cuisine, our cabbage, it's chased like good French cabbage, parsley. Okay. Um, you know, but when I think of France, I'm thinking of in French cuisine, I think a lot about the weeds that are growing out in the countryside, which is a very interesting kind of, right? Like these home, this home food. So France makes perfect sense for the study of food. I will tell you when I saw just the title of the book, I get it now. When I saw the title of the book, I thought France and, and, and of all places, England. Um, but Tell well, and I know why I read the book. So to tell us, tell my listeners why it's also England, um, and maybe like the way to do that is you know you you open your introduction with the poulpeau or the French or the roast, you know that that really kind of hits home. But so why why England? What why the that combination? So um, first of all, the the relationship is is so close, and in this um, in this period. A lot of the the way that cultures define themselves is in opposition to other cultures, and so in that sense, um, um, I think somebody somebody made this really apt comparison. The same like that England and France are like a like like a pair of binary stars, where one eclipses the other periodically, and then you know there's sometimes when you can see them both, and then sometimes when you only see one of them, and they they sort of move. They're locked in that orbit with one another, going around and around. So at, at times that you know one of them will be preeminent in in something. But then the other one will come through, and it could be it could be the arts, it could be science, but we've got this presumption that for France, that cuisine is always going to be better, um, is from in matters of in matters of taste, you know, in for la bouche, that it's always going to be it's always going to be France, and then we get this this sort of surprise that that English consumers wind up contributing to this idea of effervescence, and it's it's sort of shocks you because and it was referred to for years as as the English paradox. So how could a country that does not, you know, they barely grow grapes, they don't produce wine, um, how could they come up with how could they pioneered this winemaking technique? And it's 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 very funny because um I was giving a lecture at Alliance Francaise in Sydney 
And I was talking about this um, um, uh, famous uh, a French uh, champagne historian whose, whose name is Bonal. And it wasn't until the end that I realized that um, the woman that I had been liaising with at, at the office there, Véronique, uh, that it was her grandfather, Véronique Bonal. This was her grandfather, uh, who I was referencing in, in my talk with this idea of the of the English paradox. And it's the difference there is that, you know, if you don't have a winemaking culture, if you don't have winemaking rules because you don't make wine, breaking those rules is very easy. So if you don't have rules, then you're you're you don't have to overcome the the fear of well this is the way it's always been done who am i to overturn centuries of tradition if for centuries people have said bubbles in the wine they're a trick they're trompe l'oeil they're there to fool you from the poor quality of the wine we need to remove them because there's something that's gone wrong with the wine the wine should be clear it should not have bubbles it should be a certain color it should have a certain flavor but you know, having these bubbles is this is this is an error. But if if instead, if you think about it, if you're importing wine, um, if you've ever this doesn't really happen in my house because we never have any leftover wine. But I've heard that if you have a bottle of red wine, for example, and you only drink half of it, and then you stick the cork in, or here it's a screw cap, um, but the next day that you know the wine is not the same. It's oxidized, right? It's been it's been opened. It's been exposed to the air. And well, what if you import your wine in barrels from France? And then, you know, from the second that you tap into that barrel, the wine only gets worse each day. It gets worse. It gets, it gets kind of ropey. It gets kind of, kind of funky. And you're thinking, well, what am I going to do to fix this? They tried everything. They tried everything from alum to pigeon droppings to try and change. I know, right? To change, to change the taste of the wine. And then at one stage, they, they started adding honey. And that was an improvement. And then as sugar became less expensive, as um, sugar colonies um, in the West Indies started producing sugar, they started adding sugar. And it was one of the original members of the, the Royal Society in London, uh, the original um, librarian, Christopher Merritt, who had found a treatise called On Ordering Wines. And then he translated it and then updated it and said, here, this is how we can actually make wines sparkle if we add sugar we can have a second sort of process that you know produces um, bubbles. So while no one really understood very well at that point exactly the connection between yeasts and fermentation and sugar and what was happening, they knew if you added sugar, you got bubbles. And so it's you know the, it was unspeakable in France. You were going to add sugar? No, 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 jamais. Right? That's just that's not on the menu. So. Um, yeah, you, you wouldn't do that. And Dom Perignon was sent to the Abbey to get rid of the bubbles. He would, that was his, one of his jobs, was to get rid of the bubbles. So the whole idea of, come, brothers, I'm drinking stars, is, is you know, complete, you know, 19th century marketing material. But, it, it you know, it sounds great. Um, but, yeah, they, the French didn't know for a long time what actually made the wine sparkle. It was connected with phases of the moon. Um, it was connected with the rising sap in trees. And all of those were, I mean, the sap in the trees is pretty close because it was rising temperatures in the cave, in the chocolate cellars of Champagne, that would provoke a secondary fermentation in a barrel if there was enough residual sugar. But they hadn't figured out yet that you needed to add more sugar to get more bubbles. So you might have had a couple of bubbles that were there hanging around. So it would be, um, I think the French word would be sablon, not even pétillon. 
Um, so this tiny bit of sparkle, maybe like you get out of a, a Portuguese green wine, like Vinho Verde, you know, you get a little couple of, couple of bubbles, uh, but nothing to pop a cork. Um, and so it's this questioning, this presumption that, well, how would you invent a winemaking technique? Well, you don't have to overcome what I call cultural inertia, that you don't wind up having this sort of weight on you that says, hey, we don't we don't do that. You know, we don't we're not going to we're not putting ketchup on that. We're not you know, <laughs> we're not adding sugar to that. We're not whatever. I mean, fill in the blank. Um, think about this, like we're not eating raw fish, for example. Um, all of these different things where for the longest time people said, well, we, we don't we don't do that in my culture. We don't eat we don't eat that, for example, um, um, cultures that, for example, don't eat corn. Because that's for that's that's for gavage. You know that could be for the geese. As for the poultry, we feed that to the pigs. That's not for the table. That's not for us. Whereas in other countries, it's a staple. And for England, they looked at this um, this concept of well, I've got wine that's spoiled. It doesn't taste good. I need to sell it. I've got an economic necessity. I can't I can't bring wine in in bottles because first of all, French bottles are too weak. They break. Second of all, there are taxes on it if it's in a bottle. So I can't afford it either because the bottles break, there's taxes, there's all these different reasons why I can't have it in a bottle. It's got to come in a barrel. We'll decant it here into nice, strong English bottles, but gee, it still goes off pretty quickly. What do we do? So yes, the, the English really, it was, it was the necessity. It was, you know, necessity was the mother of, an in, of invention here. But again, too, it was this willingness to explore and experiment because there was no prohibition in place. And again, it's that, you know, this challenging this presumption that, you know, well, why should a country that doesn't make wine have a, have a, a winemaking technique? It's well, because it's precisely because they don't make their own wine. If they'd made their own wine, they wouldn't have had to worry about wine going off in transit and buying it in bulk and having it go off. But it's precisely because they weren't producers, just consumers, that they were put in this position that forced them to experiment, to try and find a way. Well, gee, this wine tastes nasty. What do I do? Hey, you add sugar, it tastes better. And you know what? Bubbles. And they like bubbles because you know they were already making cider. So they're already making cider. They're already using corks. Dom Perignon was using wooden stoppers um, and canvas covered with grease. That doesn't really do anything for the bubbles. So if you're trying to keep bubbles, that would not have helped. And there was a proclamation that was issued by the king that said, you can't burn wood in a, um, in a furnace to make glass. You can't, you can't use wood anymore. You better use coal. So they would get sea coal and they would burn that it fired the, uh, the furnaces at a higher temperature and it made for much stronger glass. So for a long time, even in, um, even in France, they would say, I, I want English glass. That's the kind of glass I want. I want English glass because it's strong enough. Because the, the pressure inside a champagne bottle is like the pressure inside a, an automobile tire. It's that kind of pressure. So yeah, that'll, that'll shatter glass that's not up to it. So if you've ever noticed, uh, just uh, if you've ever had to pick up a, a, a case of champagne, uh, it weighs more than a case of regular wine. That's because the bottles are that much thicker because they've got to be able to withstand that pressure. So, um, you know, British food, um, yeah, it's very, it's very plain. Um, but the thing too is that they, um, they like the plainness. They saw the French um, technique as being an excess and a, and a way of disguising things. Whereas the real, um, the real signifier in Britain for for food was um, having land to be able to actually produce things on your own land. You're, so you're the landed gentry. It's your own land. It's your own beef. Um, it's your own venison, for example. Very big deal. Um, and um, to be able to eat it plainly because there would be, you know, there's no place to hide. 
There's no tricks. Uh, you don't need um, you don't need a um, you know a, a kilo of butter to to poach something. You can use water. So it's <laughs> this. Unfortunately, this is what happened to a lot of French cuisine was that it got translated through this language of of um, of English and then later British economy to basically saying, yeah, we're going to skip that expensive step because that's just too much. You're wasting money. You need to be more sensible. And in doing so, there were techniques that just never got adopted in the same way. So, um, yeah, they, they never let go of some of that. Uh, so the food wound up being very plain, but they, they privileged that plainness. They turned it around and said, no, 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 that's honest. All these other things are, are tricks. So in some ways, it's that inversion of what was happening with the wine, where the French saw the bubbles as being a trick. The British felt the same way about French cuisine that, oh, look, if you need all those extra things, then, you know, it's just foolishness. You know, it's, it's, that's frippery. You're, you're, you're putting on airs. Um, instead, you know, I've got good, honest, it was always the word that they used, honest food. The idea that wasn't disguised through the vagaries of, of French cooking. So, yeah, it's, um, it's a very different attitude. But that idea about, um, you know, having your own land and being able to, especially after enclosure, the idea that, you know, this is your land and you're able to raise your own food um, and then be able to consume it. Um, was was the way that they um, that they came to to value a certain type of cuisine and and turn their back on on, on French methods. Yeah, so I mean that's in, that's in, in itself quite interesting, right? So it's there's an economy, there's a very practical situation going on. This is across the channel. I mean, it also reflects um, centuries of interaction, right? Of course, you're going to talk about France and England together. It's hard not to. Um, I mean, still, it's hard not to think about the two of them as Brexit yells, right? And because like, the Brits are yelling through Brexit at, at, across the channel. But so you've got this these centuries of communication. You have a very practical economic and, you know, just practically the atmospheric kind of conditions. And then it becomes a cultural condition. We don't do fancy French food. This is real good, honest English cuisine. You're going to eat this beef that we grew right here. Yeah, that's, that's it, right? So then that's... <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Sorry, I was just going to say that it's funny, though, the things that the... That the um... That, that lingered in, in, in English cuisine. And then after 707, we get Britain, the British Union. Um, but when you think about it, since we're, we're heading into the season, we're heading into Christmas, um, Christmas pudding. So you may not have been been subjected to, Christ, uh, sorry, to Christmas pudding as a child, but um, my mother was um, a... Um, was a very keen Anglophile that had read rather too much Dickens. So we had roast goose... And we had Christmas pudding and she even had, she had a sixpence to hide in the pudding. So whoever got the sixpence, it was a sign of good luck for the, for the year. Um, but um, so I'm, 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 I had had Christmas pudding for years before I, I moved to um, another part of the Commonwealth. Um, but it's, it's very medieval um, Christmas pudding. So I mean, the word pudding actually comes from the French word boudin. So if you think about boudin noir, the sausage, but that was the idea the original puddings were cooked the same way. So if you think about haggis, and haggis is basically that extension of boudin. And then you, you take away the sort of awful and then you replace part of it with other things. And suddenly we're at, at a pudding and a pudding cloth. And even now, like traditional Christmas pudding contains suet, contains beef suet. So suet is – in America, people know about it because it's, you know, it's what you put in a bird feeder in the winter for birds. But um, suet is the fat that actually is, surrounds the kidneys. 
Um, and so it's this really specific type of fat. It's got a particular texture to it, but you use suet when you make a Christmas pudding. And then you've got all of these you know, sort of um, very sort of medieval little bits of fruit that are in there too. So they do have about currants, you know, coming from Corinth. Um, you've got all these, you know, expensive little whatnots and the spices that lingered there. So even though, so as the French moved away from spices, in sort of the most important dishes, something like Christmas pudding, which is still around very much so today, um, and even in Australia when it's you know, you know it's you know forty five degrees Celsius, um, and people are <laughs> people are are roasting things and, and cooking um, Christmas puddings, um, but yeah, so the spices, the the dried fruits, um, you know, the suet. So that idea of like minced meat, well, this really was this was beef suet that's mixed in with with everything else there, and the way that it's cooked in a cloth. All of this really has it, – it's a sort of throwback to sort of medieval food that sort of retains all of those different elements. And in some ways, something like um, the spices in, in Britain became naturalized through the their transport through, through the East India Company. So it's come through the English East India Company. Um, therefore, it's sort of naturalized to become – um, in that sense, a, um, a, a British good, um, even more so if it's come from India. So there's this way of naturalizing the spices and saying, well, these aren't, these aren't really foreign. They're actually from part of the Commonwealth. And at one stage, there was an empire cookbook, which showed a Commonwealth pudding. It's the, the, the pudding that took a thousand cooks to make. And there was something contributed by each different country in the Commonwealth that, that brings it all together in this Christmas pudding to show that something's come from everywhere. I think I think Canada contributed apples. I think that's what, what they contributed. And Ireland did the butter and 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 so on. But it, it winds up being this um, this reminder of how um, uh, things that were sort of left behind in large amounts in in French food, where they turn their back on the spices, yeah, they wind up being retained um, in certain ceremonial foods um, in Britain. Wow! And then the idea of what it means to be English becomes what it means to be British. So it's not just venison that you hunt on this little island. It's the entire Commonwealth. That's right. Yeah. You want to be able to partake of all of these things from around the world. So whether it's coming from South Africa or Australia, um, Canada, Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, obviously. Um, but yes, yeah, so that, you know, all these different elements, um, you know, think, you know, India, you know, parts of Africa, all of these, you know, exotic locales that, you know, you would have thought, well, those aren't necessarily British, but they are. They're part of the Commonwealth, so they all they all come together, and they wind up sort of, you know, lingering in um, in, in British cuisine. Wow! So you know, you you yeah okay, um, you know, um, the one of the early questions that's obviously we're not going to do now um, is just why food, but I this whole <laughs> the whole conversation has been why food. Um, this is a, yeah, you really are what you eat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. Uh, the thing is about food is that um, it's as, as you pointed out earlier. It's you know it's, it's elemental. Like we all we all eat, but then people have different attitudes. So for some people, food is just fuel, and they're they're kind of indifferent, and they you know they kind of take it or leave it. Other people are keenly aware of it and are very concerned about it. Um, and then people make decisions, um, you know, about for example, well, do I do I eat animal products or not? Do I get rid of them entirely? Am I am I vegan? Am I vegetarian? Am I, am I an omnivore? Am I a pescatarian? So we, we make those kinds of decisions, and then we make other decisions too about like, well, am I eating something that's local? And then is it sustainable? And then but then also is it healthy? And then you know does it 
taste good? Do I do I want to eat it? Does it does it does it you know like does it spark joy? Right? There's, there's Marie Kondo for you, right? Does it spark joy? It's like that's yes, that sausage sparked joy. Um, so you know, you, it's something that everyone can relate to, and I think it winds up being a really useful way of thinking about about other issues, about about ideas that, you know, develop later, like ideas about nationalism and our cultural identity and, you know, and what, what it says about us, about, about, about what we eat and then how we share food with other people and that idea of, um, you know, sitting down together to, to share a meal. So the, the sort of fancy, um, you know, um, anthropology word is, is, um, uh, isn't conviviality, but it's commensality. The idea that you know that when we share food with other people, it it means something in a particular way to, to share food with other people, and I think that that winds up being um, an important thing to keep thinking about as people become more isolated, um, you know, in the world, and people like lose connections with other people. That that sharing food with other people is is something that's um, that's that's important. So I think that it winds up being really useful for history for people to look at at history and using food as as a way of getting a better understanding of things that might otherwise be kind of dusty or dry, but they become more interesting because they relate to something that we actually understand. So it gives us this this tangible um, object that we can that we can relate to because we've all had some contact with it in some way. So even if we're not, you know. Um, you know, keen gourmands where we were, we were really into our food. At the same time, people all understand like that, you know, food has, you know, food is an important part of culture. And, um, you know, the, the French meal is, uh, I think it is, is protected under UNESCO heritage, right? So, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it, it, it isn't, it is important. And um, even if it's not haute cuisine, uh, the act of, of sharing food with another person, I think is, uh, is an important thing to keep in mind. So I think it's quite useful for history to be able to have something that's, you know, accessible, that people understand. Um, doesn't have to be theory, doesn't have to be philosophy. It's not even as complicated as, as science. Um, everybody eats. So yeah, I think food winds up being a good way to look at history. You know, uh, this week is a perfect time to talk about it. Listeners, it's 22 November, so we are a couple days away from American Thanksgiving, which has a different meaning for both Chip and I, who are Americans abroad. Um, so, um, <clears throat> but Thanksgiving's a great way. It's a perfect example, right? We eat New World foods, um, and some of us are going to go get our heritage turkey that we bought in May from our farmer. And some of us are going to get the thing that costs seven cents a pound at like the Meyer. Um, <clears throat> that's a Michigan reference for the record, you know, and like I make a cranberry sauce from fresh cranberries and it takes days and some people are going to zip open that can, but it's all the same like idea of celebrating like, you know, our largely fictionalized history and the actual history of post-Civil War and the idea of what it means to be an American in whatever way we do it. This is a perfect day for this conversation. It, it is. And actually, um, um, one of the times when I was living um, in France, um, I actually, um, uh, I made made gravy for 200 people um, at the Église Américaine um, in, in Paris. So there's the American, it's nominally referred to as the um, the American church, um, but it's it's also foreign. There's lots of people from other, other countries that are there. Um, and um, uh, at the church, they had a um, they had a um, 
a Thanksgiving meal where they it, it attracted especially um, foreign exchange students. So students that were doing a year abroad in Paris and were feeling very homesick uh, would come along in addition to expatriates, um, you know, in, in, uh, in the community would, would come along to the church. And, um, and I saw that they were getting ready for this and um, they, they had a, they had a saying of, of don't um, uh, don't, if you want to help out with something, don't push in, just fit in. So I just turned up and said, oh, do you need an extra pair of hands, um, you know, getting ready for the meal? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, I said, okay, great. I'll come along. They said, yeah, sure, no problem. Um, and then um, I came along and uh, I think they, they sort of noticed when I brought my own knives. So I had my knife roll and I, I, I unrolled it. And they were like, oh, hey, okay. <laughs> First thing someone said was, hey, can I borrow one of those? Because these are really dull. So, you know, lend, some, lend somebody a knife and then I'm doing you know, bits of, I said, well, you know, I'll do anything. Whatever, what do you need me to do? Like, you know, you take out the take out the trash. Um, you know, whatever, peel something, whatever, and and then yeah, just as they went along, they were like, "Oh my god, yeah, okay, yes, yeah, yeah." We we know we say don't push in, fit in, but yeah, you need to push in. Okay, get over here, do this, and you know, the guy that normally makes the gravy isn't here this year, so we need somebody to make gravy. Can you make gravy? I'm like, sure. So yeah, no, it was um, it was great. You know, to be able to. Uh, participate in um, something like that, you know, making Thanksgiving, you know, um, you know, dinner for, uh, for 200 people, a lot of whom were sort of, you know, wishing they could be with their families. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, was a nice, um, uh, was a nice event. But it's, it's funny when you talk about um, people getting turkeys, um, at least I heard that there's um, a turkey shortage um, in some parts of the US. So my sister was saying, I think we're having so I think we're having uh, I think we're having steak this year because, yeah, it's just too hard. Like we didn't order in advance, and um, yeah, it's um, there's a shortage of turkeys in some areas. So a lot of people are actually coming to grips with what we're talking about right now. That idea of like, well, what, what do I do instead? Um, what do I? How do I find a way to make this special if I can't have the bird? You know what? What else? What else can I do? What else is? What else is festive? And so it's it's not like. Um, it's not like there's great superstitions around Thanksgiving. Like if you don't have, if you don't have a Thanksgiving Turkey, you know, that's bad luck for the next seven years or something. But um, uh, I know that um, at least for one of my grandparents, um, you couldn't have anything that scratches. You couldn't have any poultry in the house going into a new year. So like, you know, that was um, a particular uh, superstition. So like, that's why you could have, for example, you could have, you couldn't have Turkey on new year's Eve, but you could have ham. So we don't have the same thing with Thanksgiving, but um, yeah, people just finding trying to find ways like, well, I just want to be, I want to be festive and I want to sort of celebrate people coming together because yeah, it, as you pointed out, like this, you know, largely fictionalized holiday really about sort of, you know, post-war um, homecomings is really about, you know, making a, a special meal that celebrates people coming together because many people don't understand why Americans travel for Thanksgiving. And it's, it's, it's that, it's that of coming home. It's that homecoming that even, even more so than Christmas, that it's, it's that emphasis of people coming together. So, you know, it's finding something to, to share, but yes, having, um, having cope with, um, uh, for example, uh, vegetarians and, and vegans and things like that. I, I can I can definitely recommend a, a mushroom Wellington as being a good alternative uh, uh, centerpiece because at least it's um, at least it's uh, at least it's special. Um, but um, yeah, no, it's it's great if you can put together um, if you could, you know the three sisters. 
Yeah, so the the idea of, of that when you grow like um, squash and corn and beans together, that they they promote nitrogen fixation in the soil. So that this was something that you know, you know, native cultures knew. First Nations people did this, and you know, you know, colonists you know learned from them and were able to do it. So it's nice to be able to put something like that together. Um, I think just to have something that's actually you know vaguely uh, historically correct on the table. Um, yeah, but it's um yeah it's it's that idea of, of coming together for those those celebrations, especially at those moments when when people will will actually make some kind of an effort. So yeah, even if um even if you're unmolding the uh, the the cranberry uh, sauce from the can, uh, you know sometimes people they go that extra mile, they tip it over, they slice it in half, maybe little slices, you know, pretty it up. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's those moments where we where we celebrate, um, you know, people coming together, even if it's just really basic food um, that I that I think uh, remind us of how important food is. Yeah, and also the great um, a lot of people try to go home and a lot of people can't. So then we have friendsgivings, which is just get together with your community, eat together, and and make each other food. It's, it really is this a kind of deep. Yeah, no, definitely. I've definitely had that and had lots of times when um, I've worked with people from um, uh, other countries and just I've dragged them, dragged them home with me, whether they come to my house or to um, uh, when my parents were around um, to, to my parents' house or um, uh, we've had uh, foreign exchange students. I know that have that have come for um, for, you know, for for meals, things like that. But yeah, and I've, certainly we've had ones with expatriates here in um, in Australia, too. Um, and last Thanksgiving, um, I surprised um, an American friend. Uh, she brought sweet potato pie, and I fried a turkey. Yes, exactly. So, so she is. She's uh, she's from she's from California. She's from um, uh, from Southern California, but she never had fried turkey. So she brought um, uh, sweet potato pie, and um, and I, I deep fried a turkey. So um, quite a. It was it was quite an event. Um, lots of Australians were um, were simultaneously um, amused and horrified uh, that I was uh, frying a turkey. But none of them argued when they ate it. They all said, "You know, I've got to say, usually when I have turkey, it's pretty dry, pretty dusty." And yeah, that's that's good. I'm glad you did it. I'm glad we did it at your house, not at my house, because it's it's very messy. But yeah, no, that's that's um that's, that's certainly a tradition that. Um, um, that I think some people would, would be happy to embrace. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wow. Oh, this has, this interview has been a bit like riding, um, a bucking Bronco. I've had no control over it from the start and that is okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry if I've done that. Didn't, didn't it's to do that. been great. It's been really, really wonderful conversation. I'm super happy. I've taken up worlds of your time. So, uh, I'll just one more question and I'll let you go. Um, and that is what's next. What are you working on right now? So um, I've got a couple things going on. One is um, I've started to do some work, um, uh, mostly teaching um, digital history, um, but also I'm working on a digital history project, I'm looking to um, map and network um, a royal tour um, to see um, you know what I can learn by by engaging in that exercise to see. Not just where you go, but how many people go, and how did it work, and what was it like when a thousand people turn up at your tiny village um, for a royal tour, um, and um, then seeing the connections that come out of it. What happens when you take the court and then go around the country? What, what comes out of that? So a little bit of digital history, and the other thing I'm working on is 
on a sort of a larger project looking um, across several countries at um, botanical imperialism. So this extends a little bit of some of the things that I talked about in the book, but looking beyond just food, but also to include things like medicine. So something like chinchona, so the idea of like you know quinine and that that coming from a tree and the countries that discover it and then look to control it um, and how it spreads around the world. But then um, you know uh, other things like sugar, but how sugar came, for example, to Australia um, and how it circulated from Tahiti to um, to, to Mauritius and to other places, looking at how all these different plants made their way around the planet. And some of them, some of them are, are edible and some of them have use in sort of economic botany and some of them have their use in science. But again, it's this idea of, of, um, of people and things and ideas moving and then looking at it across different cultures to try and get a better understanding. Because I think that when we only look at something within a national context, we really only get sort of one perspective. But when we look at it, it's too big to look at on a global perspective. But if we find comparables from other cultures that are doing something slightly different, it gives us different ideas about the kind of exchanges that are occurring or not occurring um, and the, the different approaches and the different ideas that come out of there. So that um, little bit of a botanical imperialism is what I'm after next. Ooh, it sounds very good. I can't wait to read that either. All right. Uh, listeners, we have been talking to Garrett Van Dyke um, about his new book, Commerce, Food and Identity in 17th Century England and France Across the Channel, um, out this year with the 2022 with the Amsterdam University Press. And there'll be, as always, a link to it on our website. Go find it and read it. It's a wonderful book. All right. And Chip, thank you very much. Have a lovely, lovely day, evening. It's your evening, yeah? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Right. Have a lovely, yeah. lovely evening in uh, with your whales in Australia. Thanks, Jana. Bye.